The world of technology is constantly evolving, and with the rapid growth and exposure of artificial intelligence, what do companies need to know? How does a company embrace artificial intelligence to continue expanding their business? In this episode of the Privately Speaking podcast series, guest host and KPMG audit partner Shivani Sapori sits down with Alahi Amade, Chief Executive Officer at Themis AI Inc., which focuses on technology that enables safe decision-making for autonomous agents to discuss further. Hello, my name is Shivani Sapori. I am a partner at KPMG in our private enterprise group, and I'm really excited to be guest hosting today's Privately Speaking podcast and to have with me Elahe Amadi, who is the CEO of Themis AI. Welcome, Elahe. Thank you, Shivani. As I said, my name is Elahe Amadi. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Themis AI. A little bit about me, I was born and raised in Iran. I moved to the U.S. after I got into MIT for my undergrad and I got my bachelor and a master's degree from MIT in computer science. And for my master's, I was working with my now co-founder on a technology for technology that uh, we spun out and started Themis AI based on. Thank you for the quick intro. We're definitely going to get into a lot more about your background and Themis itself and really what your company does, which I think is a great way to move into the next topic. Can you tell a little bit about your origination story for your company? I know it's fairly specific because you did start research and you started out at MIT. So it'd be great to understand what your research was and how that turned into the company you're running right now. Yeah, of course. The research was uh, done at uh, Professor Daniel Russo's lab at MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Labs. And this is the work that we've done for the past six, seven years on uh, what we used to, or like in the lab, called it a debiasing technology. So basically what motivated us was one of the biggest challenges in machine learning application, especially in data set, is that a lot of the times you have rare events or underrepresentation in certain groups or certain scenarios, but you want to train a model that still works well on those rare events because you want your system to be able to perform well under all sorts of circumstances. But if there isn't that much representation in the data set, then your model is not going to learn it. So we were very passionate about this and we were like, is it possible to solve it? And the first area that we tried to tackle this problem was in autonomous vehicle. So one of the challenges there, again, is like in the data set, most of the data set is actually from a car driving down a highway. And and that's good when you use it for training, the model learns how to drive down a highway, but there's not all the scenarios that you drive. There is like bad weather scenarios or like the complex roads that you want the vehicle to still be able to operate. But if they're not represented, how would the model learn it? So we came up with this algorithm that basically was able to pick up, automatically pick up on all of these rare events and make sure during training, the model is seeing those more. So it's learning, even though there isn't that much representation, the model is focusing the training time on those area. And that resulted in being able to outperform all like other state-of-the-art models on autonomous vehicle. And that kind of led into a next step that, were, that team was, okay, we tried an autonomous vehicle. And that was around a time that there was a lot of issues with facial detection, the Google model and Facebook model, then they had to like stop it or ban it. And the team applied this technology on there. And we were able to basically kind of do the same 
like underlying technology, be able to understand a data set. So what we do is basically try to like understand the underlying distribution and the underlying features that are in the data set and use that to understand what are some areas that are underrepresented and make sure that the model learns those areas more. One of the examples or one of the challenges of the facial data set is that there aren't that much representation of racial minorities or people of different colors. And that resulted in the model not being able to perform on there. Again, similarly, we were able to improve the model performance, especially on underrepresented groups, and outperform all of the other existing models. And we're like, okay, cool. We did it in two applications. Let's see if it works on like other data modalities. Because until now, it was only on images. And that's when I joined the lab and I started working on adapting this technology on healthcare application. And in that scenario, we were working with tabular data and it was clinical trials data. So the goal was to basically be able to predict whether the clinical trial was going to be successful given the, in phase three, given information on phase one and phase two. Similarly, we were able to like, again, do the same thing, uncover some biases that were not obvious, especially in tabular data. It's a lot harder because you don't have anything to see. It's like numbers and you're like, you need to make sense out of it. And again, we were able to outperform state of the other state of the art models. And, and that kind of like, it was this bring us back to fall of, uh, or summer of 21, and the founding team got together and we were like, okay, we have this amazing technology and it seems like the industry needs it. So why not spin it out and help the industry with this challenge? So that was kind of like the very long version of how Themis was born. I'm just curious, how long were you all in research and development? So I joined the lab at almost end of 2019, but this was the research that was in the making since 2016, I believe. That's, that's pretty impressive. It's a, it's a long runway. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's like I think it shows the complexity of the problem that it's like we after that many like years of research, we still have figured out like maybe like two parts of like what it actually makes a trustworthy AI model. And there is like a lot more research that needs to be done because these models are complex. There is a lot of like a lot of things about them that we still don't know, like why they're even working to begin with. Um, so being able to remove that like challenge of risk out of it is like, makes it even a lot harder. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned trustworthy. And I also noticed in your mission statement that one of your, um, your mission is to enable trustworthy AI. So for the audience, can you talk a little bit about like what you see as what does trust mean to you and why it's important? There's like a lot of like different pillars that kind of like contribute to trust and like making a model or like a software trustworthy or system. And for us at Themis, we kind of focus on three main pillars. One of them is fairness. So is your model going to perform well on all the subgroups that you have? And this is, this can be social fairness or kind of like going back to representation, like representation for this. Um, the second one is reliability and robustness. So you want your model to be reliable and be robust to new scenarios and different scenarios. And the last one is explainability. So you need your model to be able to kind of tell you to some extent what's going on and tell you when it's failing and when it's failing, why is, what was the reason that it caused that failure? Um, there are a lot of other aspects that goes into trustworthiness, like privacy, security, uh, et cetera. But then these would be like things that we'll be working on like as follow-ups. But I think we start with these three main pillars at Themis. 
Um, I think when most companies, when they buy services or they're implementing these machine learning tools, naively, we are all thinking, well, it's a system. So by nature, it should be unbiased. And I think what your research and probably everything you looked at so far would indicate that's not true. Yes. Um, So I guess, how would you think about that? Or how would you articulate it to like a board of directors or, you know, um, other kinds of companies as far as like what risk there is actually in adopting some of these models and, and not testing them or not fully understanding their capabilities? The reason that that comes in is like a lot of the, I think now the industry is more aware of it, but like early on the days of machine learning, people were using our model is 99% accurate. And it's the best model out there. So you should be using it. And like as a high level person, you're like, okay, 99% is good. Pretty much pretty good. So let's use it. But the the issue with the way that this accurate measurement is coming in is that it's not taking account these rare events or underrepresentation group or like the things that don't happen. But when they happen, you need to be aware of it. And, and that's when a lot of companies kind of like had to pay huge prices and like lose their public image because they didn't think about it. They didn't think it would be important. Like once you have 99% accuracy, like what is that 1%? What I would advise like people when they're thinking about like buying solutions from third parties is kind of ask more, like get require more information, like a full audit of like, how is this model exactly working? Like show me the examples that this model is failing and like show me ways that I can actually avoid that failure. Show me like when the model is like predicting something as like X, how true is that? And like, should I just go with that? Or if I like, if it's failing, what is the price of that to me? It's like kind of asking for more, like now they've got like a bias audit or like an audit and more extended report on the model behavior before like kind of like going into like, okay, yeah, this is good. Let's use it in in applications. In your experience, do you find that most of these tools, it is possible to actually identify why a system's doing what it's doing as opposed to it being more of like a black box? Uh, that's a great one. Very generally speaking, I would say no. So the, the challenge is that a lot of these models are very complex. Like one example of it that I think everybody's not talking about and knowing is ChatGPT. It's like this model is huge. It costs like hundreds of millions of dollars to just train it. And it's not going to be like when the model is that huge, like being able to understand it, like it takes even more complexity to be able to do that. To simply put it, it's not that easy like solution. It's like, oh yeah, we just do this. And it's like, it gives you a full report on everything and we're all good. And that's why we exist. (laughs) So we basically are trying like the, the very first step that we are trying to take towards that, like being able to like fully understand these models is understanding their failures and being able to avoid it, understanding like the areas that they're robust and understanding their limitations so that when they're going outside of that limitation, you can intervene, you can bring humans in the loop, you can like not let the model like give any output. Now, are there applications for what you're doing outside of machine learning alone? Because I know there's like different stages of artificial intelligence. And I was reading an article that was pretty much saying that we're really just at like the beginning stages of AI. Can you talk a little bit about where the evolution's going? And um, if, I guess, if you are willing to give an opinion, like, are you a proponent of the direction it's headed? Or do you think <laughs> we're kind of going too far and pushing the AI envelope too far? I think we're in a very interesting path in terms of, so the in, in the AI, AI is like a very big like label and there's a lot of different things underneath, as you also mentioned. Right now, the 
in my opinion, I could be completely wrong, is that the the challenge is in neural networks and like not understanding how these neural networks are working because the the models that came before that, they were kind of to some extent explainable. Like there was this is a decision trees, uh, regression models, a lot of that, like you kind of know the decision boundary. So it's kind of understood, like easy for you to know the limitation of that model. But for neural networks, they're amazing because they can have very complex decision boundaries, but it's also they're scary because you don't know, understand what is that limitation and what is that, what that decision boundary exactly is. Currently, that's where we are focusing. So we're focusing on making neural networks more risk aware in the sense that when it's making a decision, you not like with our technology, we can make the model to tell you some risk scores on like uh, whether there is any bias involved in this, whether there is any model uncertainty involved in this, whether there's any data uncertainty involved in this. So it's like kind of taking one step further into like instead of just trusting the model prediction, uh, probability now you have like some more information that you can be like okay should should you rely on this or should you discard it so when you talk about neural networks is that like a model that can learn on its own as opposed to just be given parameters i guess uh, for somebody like me who might be a little bit more early on in my understanding of ai how would you uh, explain that so there are different algorithms that come like can be made out of neural networks there is like reinforcement learning, there are language models um, that can use reinforcement learning, there is like transformers. I'm using a soup of words right now, but uh, basically it's kind of like, that's where the innovation comes in. Like, how do you train it? How do you make it be more smart? And it's like kind of in the simplest way that I can kind of put it is like this really interesting and capable black box that you define like some sort of like optimization function or like uh, your cost function, like what is good and what is bad. And you throw the data at it and um, it magically learns. I mean, the ma- there is some stuff involved in the magic, but like magically learn something about the data. And now it can actually give you like outputs with really good like accuracy or like performance metrics that have been used. And I don't know if that's helpful. I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that's helpful. I think it also touches on another thing about just the information being used to run some of these models and the reliability of that data. I've got to imagine that if your inputs are incorrect or flawed in some way, your output's going to be hugely flawed as well. Um, Is that something that you're seeing in the field too? Like not just how the algorithms build, but really the information getting put into the algorithms? Yeah, exactly. That's like one of the, again, like another big challenge with the, like using a lot of these big data is that there is, especially like some of the data, like if they're, you're taking it from internet, then you're kind of like accepting the fact that you're also taking a lot of garbage information there. If like a lot of the labeled data set, those are labeled mostly by human beings, even today, and human beings have errors. And so like, and if it's like a million data samples, it's not something that you can like very easily quality control it. It's like some of them is going to just like get out or get away. That's actually one of the things that we think about and like, and thought about in our research is like, how can we, with the understanding that the data is imperfect, still try to train a model that is to some extent robust toward to all of that imperfection. And it's kind of like goes back into trying to understand your data distribution. And usually those kind of like 
as long as the wrong information is not taking over your data set and it's like it's not like 90% garbage, uh, but rather if it's like the other way, like it's 90% good and there's like 10% garbage, with a lot of the, the methodologies that are currently out there, there are ways to like kind of identify those like 10% and uh, be able to like either remove it from your data set or clean your data set. Being a startup in a very complex and uh, deep tech space, I've got to imagine you run into possibly some challenges of like working with larger entities or like getting or gaining that trust with customers or potential customers. How have you managed those challenges? It is very hard, especially like for the beginning years of like companies, because you don't yet have a product. Like there is some things there, but it's not like a full-fledged product that has been tested and gone through like rigorous testing. What has worked for us is kind of like using our reputation of like our founding team. Like we have Professor Daniel Roos, who is a legend in the space. We have Dr. Alexander Amini, who's also like a very well-known and like very respected person in the space that he's been working on. And a lot of the people that we're currently working on is coming from like they they knew us before we started the company. And once they realized that we're working on this, they were like, oh, yes, please help me. This is an issue that I'm dealing with. Like, help me fix that. Um, that's I know that's not usually like I mean, it's a privilege for us. And it's not something that it's always there for you know, like a lot of other startups. But. I'm seeing the growth into like bigger enterprises coming up with programs or accelerators or incubators to kind of like connect that gap between like big enterprises and like new technologies and new startups. And like one of the ones that I've recently seen is Intel Ignite that Intel started its own accelerator program and it takes in like new startups and like for free, not even taking any equity take them into like rigorous uh, programming of like how to think about business in product development. And it's also for them beneficial because then they can like, if there is anything that is useful for Intel, they can take it and implement it further in their uh, processes. For you, I mean, moving from like a research job to a job as a CEO, how did you navigate the switch? Like, did you find you already had the skill set or did you have to like build up a um, kind of a, a new set of skills that maybe weren't there before? How did you navigate that? Definitely a lot of learning <laughs> and it's, uh, and I continue to learn a lot more. I think for us, like the problem that we're tackling is very technical, it's very researchy. And me having that background was very helpful to be able to kind of switch from being an engineer, being a researcher into like, now I'm the CEO. I have to like talk to investors, talk to companies, talk to clients, talk business. Uh, and it's a completely different language. It's like learning a new, whole new vocabulary and learning how to translate a lot of things. Like one of the interesting things that I had to learn in the beginning was just because we have a technology that we're super excited about, it doesn't mean customers are going to be excited about it. And the fact that like customers get excited about a product that does something for them and kind of don't care what goes underneath that product. So Kind of accepting that and like figuring out like how how do we change from like oh we have done like this five years of amazing research into okay this is the product that has all of that underneath so it's it's a, a lot of like very very interesting like changes but I want to also like say thing to like my support system of like um coming out of MIT MIT had a lot of like good programs and like mentors and investors that like really helped us to like think about that and like think about that change of like from research to business and also I think the culture in the east coast is also very supportive like 
a lot of other founders are very willing to like help you and um, to share their network or like take like sit with you and just like go over your deck or like your product roadmap. And I think that's very valuable to like have in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge a lot of companies do have is taking something that you know is really great, but translating that to a customer base and getting them to understand why it's as great as you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's tough, <laughs> but I guess yeah. that makes it like interesting also. <laughs> yeah. Now, I understand a lot of your team initially was part of the same research group when you started. How have you thought about your team expansion and like adding other people to your group or maybe even like upscaling some of your current team members to take on different roles within your company? Most of our team even today is like machine learning engineers and like scientists. So we're still like since we did a lot of the research in the lab, but there is like a lot more needs to be done to kind of take that and make it into something that industry scale is actually usable. So in that sense, we're still like very actively doing research, but we also like realize that our team is very technical. So we like, we have a member from Harvard Kennedy School who has that kind of like business and more like AI regulation and knows that language who has been very helpful in helping us kind of navigate and like change our image and and storytelling. And moving forward, I think we're basically going to like bring on people who have like skill sets that the rest of the team don't have, like on the product building side, on the marketing side, um, on the business side. I know it's a little bit of a detour, but I did want to just ask about your thoughts on what, if anything, needs to be done from a policy standpoint and how you think about the evolution of the technology and even where like regulations are. Because currently there does seem to be a pretty big misalignment between where how quick the technology is moving and where the if any regulations exist. I think the regulations and policies are up and coming, which is really Harboring. I mean, it's better than nothing. It's it's better <laughs> uh, than that. But I think the one of the biggest challenges or like issues that I'm seeing is the gap of the people who are working on these policies and regulations and the people who are building the technology and the fact that there aren't there aren't that many people who like to bridge the gap. I think we're go- getting better at that. Our co-founder. Professor Roos, she is involved in the global AI regulation conversation. U.S. recently put together like some of the leaders in the space to like help with figuring out what's, what's the best way to regulate the space. So I think we're definitely moving towards that. But the issue is the policy word moves a lot slower than these technologies do. So the challenge is like, while we're waiting for these regulation, what should happen in, in the meantime? And like, is it, should we stop doing the research part until the policy catches up, which I don't think that's a good solution because like we haven't done that in the past for any technology that was developed. So it's kind of like, I think one of the things that on the policy and regulation side needs to happen and like is more urgent is like kind of adding something, some sort of like regulation or policy in the meantime, before the policy matures to the point that it can actually be like scaled and like have a more easy way to do that, all of that checking and ensuring. I do appreciate that. I, I actually was not aware that there's these groups of individuals that are actually coming together from both sides, from the industry and from uh, the policymaking to come up with something that would be usable in practice. So that's good to hear from an industry standpoint. 
The other thing that I was curious about, I am a big woman, uh, supporter of women in technology and especially like female CEOs and founders in the startup space. And I think we all know the numbers aren't greatest as far as like how the percentage of women CEOs and founders, especially in the start in technology startups. But you're kind of unique in that not only are you a female CEO of a tech startup, but it's also a very like deep tech startup. So it's highly technical. I don't necessarily want to go down the path of talking about like how we ended up where we're ending up. But I was curious from your perspective on like what can we do to move the needle forward? Like what can we do to increase the number of women starting companies as well as really like increasing the number of women in more technical spaces like yourself? I think one of the like very easy thing that we can do is like encouragement. Like there is a lot of like, um, I mean, the numbers are definitely hugely imbalanced, but there are like female in the deep tech, the like word who are doing research and like kind of bring in that resource of like, you can start a company if you want to, like there are like all these resources available to you if you do like want to choose that path. So I think like one of them is, comes from encouragement from like the the universities or like the where where they're doing the research and like to let them know that this is a path that they could be taking. Another one that I really appreciated is the other female CEOs and founders and how like supportive and helpful they've been towards me and like and they've been willing to do that for free like basically just like spending um, like taking time out of their calendar which is like super valuable since no founder has any time <laughs> and like, just like helping the like, guiding me and like, or sharing their network. I think that has been enormously valuable. And I, I think like, obviously we should do that more like in the, not only like female founders, but like other founders to support this like minority groups and like support them to grow given that all odds are against them. So, like the, in terms of like, VC funding, we can look at this statistics and are super bad. It's, like, no, only 1.9% of the VC funding in last year uh, went to all female founders. Another part was like, if the female founders were paired with a male founder, that number jumped into 16%. So it's kind of like from the statistics, we see that the odds are all against them. So like as supportive as we can be and like helping with like introducing them to other VCs, to other like customers, I think that can change that number hopefully in the future. And just curious, did you actually just reach out to female founders or other founders that you wanted some insights from, or did you get references from some of your investors? Like, I guess, how, how did you build your network or starting to build your network? Mostly from the VC networks. Right now, most of the people that I know as like other portfolio companies of the VCs that have invested in us. And like, I really love that about our VCs because they like not only said that they value diversity, but they actually are doing it and they are investing in like diverse founders and people who other VCs would be heavily biased against. So I think that has allowed me to get access to like a really good sort of like diverse group of people. But they, these kind of like VCs exist. So like you can talk to them and they would be a lot more understanding and like more supportive and and also like my MIT network has been very helpful, but I know that's not something that like everybody has access to, but like a lot of these networking events, there's like, um, especially if you're in Boston area or in Silicon Valley, and I'm sure there's like a lot of other cities, there are a lot of networking events for like founders that you can just go and meet other founders who are working in your space. The other question I've got for you is currently in the environment that we're in, obviously like tech did take a big hit from a public company standpoint and the public markets. We have also been seeing just like a slower 
run of fundraising that's able to happen for um, early to late stage startups. So I guess having your company been around for a couple of years now, like have you seen a shift in how you need to be running your business in the current environment? Or I guess where you're sitting right now, is it buckle down, you've got a couple, like another year or two, like I guess, how are you viewing the current market and the macroeconomic effects on how you're running your business? Yeah, it's it's been very kind of like challenging in the sense that the numbers, like if you talk to or like, and this has happened to like, I would talk to like founders who started like in 2020, and I would like ask them like, how did you raise and like, what was it? What did you show in like in your deck when you were talking to VCs? And a lot of them would be like, oh, for like a five million seed round, I just had my team and an idea, and I'll be like, but that's not what VCs want right now. They're like, where's the product? Where's the customer? Where's the revenue? I'm like, it's seed round. Like, come on. So I think the VC's expectation has have definitely like gone a lot higher on like what you need to bring on the table before they like even start touching their pocket of like to think about writing your check. So I think in that sense, it's been really tough. And, but also it's, I think it's kind of like an overcorrection to the industry and like, limits a lot of the people who the money should have been allocated to other companies who like had like better like technology or better product or better strategy. It's unfortunate that the overcorrection is happening now and it's affecting a lot of founders who don't deserve to like have to struggle this much. But and so forth like I think it's a it's something that the market needs until like we go into like a more reasonable um, state. Yeah, it's the the pendulum swung one way too far. Now it's yeah. the other way. We haven't quite gotten to an equilibrium, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're almost at time. I do just want to thank you so much. I learned so much about not only how to think about AI, but also um, how to think about bias in the way we look at different kinds of algorithms, a lot of what Themis does, and just um, how to think about running a business at this time frame. So thank you so much for the time, Ilan. Hey, really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. It was it was great chatting with you, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. KPMG Private Enterprise is proud to announce that it has joined the MIT Media Lab as a consortium lab member, collaborating with the Media Lab to help support its mission to create transformative technologies, experiences, and systems that enable people to reimagine and redesign their lives. Thank you for listening to KPMG's Privately Speaking podcast. And be sure to subscribe to this series to be notified of new episodes. 